Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here and happy to get to share with you this morning. But before I do, we actually have another video clip we want to share with you about from Abundant Joy Church in Lake Forest. So why would we share the promo uh, video for another church in our area? And, and the the reason is simple. We care about the multiplication of the gospel. We desire the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out, and uh, that means more and different churches to exist. And so we are excited. About six months ago, I got to uh, make a friendship, a new friendship with this is Pastor Tony Smith of Abundant Joy Church. Took that. I snuck out of here last week to go uh, attend their service. And uh, just have been excited about the things that are happening and as they uh, go on and celebrate one year of being a church this Christmas Eve, I'm excited that we get to share a gift with them and uh, really just to be a part of it and partners in the gospel is to bless us as well. Well, please join me in prayer. Father God, we lift up Abundant Joy Church, Lord, as they are starting their service even right now at 10 o'clock. Lord, we pray that you would bless uh, the, the message and bless the music and you would bless the people that come and that their members would get out and continue to get out in their neighborhoods and invite. And Lord, we also pray for our church this morning, that we would respond to your word as well and that we would be excited for what you are doing in our lives and in our communities and through your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This past week, I saw an article, it was, it was kind of an interesting one. I don't normally read the, the sports sections, but it was talking about this uh, young female college basketball player for UConn who just had a completely dominating experience, dominating game, where she just annihilated the other team. And when they were interviewing her afterwards, she said an interesting thing. She said, I was born for this. That's sort of an interesting and pretty bold claim to make about something, that you have found sort of the unique uh, intersection of the things that you love to do and the things that you're good at doing and have found uh, either, you know, pay for that or, or some way that you get to do that. And there seems to be a, a rhythm or a nature to that, that there's this confidence, this is what I was designed for, this is what I was born for, this is what my life um, was made for. Well, have you ever thought to ask that question yourself, or maybe go to college and spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to try and figure it out. <laughs> Some people, this question can cause a lot of anxiety. There's this, this idea that I'm missing out. I might be missing out on the very thing I was made for. For others, you think that's just a, a luxury I don't even have because I'm just trying to make it to the next month or the next week or maybe even just to tomorrow. But there's business magazines and online job search companies that make it their effort to, to make you believe that there really is something out there and they can be the ones to help you to find what it is. Uh, there's dozens of these online quizzes you can take and to save you the time, I went ahead and took a few of them and wanted to share with you the results of what I was uh, born to do. The first one I found out is I was born to be a programmer, uh, to write code and stare at a screen all day, every day. Uh, the next one was to be a performer. Um, kind of like Beyonce, uh, I would just go by one name. We'd have to make a better one. And, and the last one I got was really interesting. If you can read that, it says the Pope. <laughs> I can't say that these were the most valid scientific questionnaires that I chose. I think I answered that I pray sometimes on one of them and 
they're, well, 77% Pope is what I got. <laughs> well, at nine days till Christmas, we are focused here on the events surrounding the birth of Jesus with this series, God Came Down. Something that is real, that is necessary, and is incredibly relevant to your life. And so far, what we've looked at so far is that God came down in real historical time, that it was foretold about in Scripture and is anticipated by the Jewish people. We also looked at last week that God came down in real human flesh with a real human nature, that he is fully God and fully man. And then if that is true, if both these things are true, then what we're talking about is not only the most unique birth of all time, but also the most important. In fact, as one pastor said, uh, it's unique about this birth. We're talking about the only human who ever chose to be born. It's an interesting thought. Well, if that's true, then it's important that we not only talk about that he came down, but we actually talk about why he came down. Why did God come down? What was Jesus born to do? Now, it's probably no surprise as a dad of little kids that my kids, they love Christmas, and they specifically love Christmas lights. We came home from Thanksgiving, uh, visiting my folks, and we came back, we were amazed to see that already about half our neighborhood seemed to have their lights up on their house. And my kids were kind of giving me the uh, proverbial elbow to the ribs, like, Dad, when are we going to get our lights up? And then a couple more neighbors got their lights up, like, immediately across from our house. Dad, when are we going to get our lights up? It's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then finally, last Saturday, we got them up, to my great relief. And for the kids, it's been so fun because our two-year-old especially, once it's dark out, first she wants, to let you, she wants you to let her know that it's not bedtime yet because that's very important. Then secondly, she wants to know if the lights are on. And if they're on, she wants me to carry her across the street so she can look at them. And it's this really fun thing that we have, but it's also a little funny because we put a lot of time and effort and energy into the lights and the decorations and all this stuff. And we kind of wonder, well, why? Why is it that not only Christians who celebrate Christmas, but why is it a cultural thing that at this time of year, people love to put up these lights? I think part of the answer, at least, is because in these times of extended darkness, we long for a light to shine. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it talks about Jesus not only as the Word who became flesh, but also as the true light that came into the world, a light that shines in the darkness. And the Christmas narrative is one of light coming into darkness, much like your house lights on a winter night. But what is this darkness? Because John's using it as a theological metaphor. But in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Christmas account, we find something a little more down to earth. He uses the accounts of the wise men coming and the events surrounding them to give us a clear picture of the darkness in our world. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. What Herod does is wicked, and it's disturbing, and it's dark. But it is also the reminder that within the very Christmas accounts, that it wasn't only that Jesus came as a light, but he came into darkness. 
He came into a broken world where things were not right, where wrongs are rampant and power is abused and pain is all too well known. I know it's not what we typically like to talk about at Christmas, but it's very important that we do because this season is not immune from pain. Far from it. Some of you here this morning might be celebrating your first Christmas without a spouse or a parent or a friend or a child. And whether it's because of distance or divorce or disease or death, there is loss and there is pain and there is darkness in our world. And the Bible, we can rest assured, is not blind to it because that's why Jesus came. He entered into a world of suffering and death in order to do something about it. In fact, it's in the very name that he was given. Just one chapter before in Matthew 1, an angel from God pronounces to Joseph Jesus' name and destiny. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to see what it says, but I also want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he'll save them from an oppressive regime, though that's what a lot of people wanted. It doesn't say that he'll put an end to pain, though he did heal some. The angel didn't say all evil will be punished and the righteous will be lifted up, even though that's what John the Baptist and others were expecting. No, that's not why he came, at least not yet. His purpose for coming as light into the darkness was to save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to save. And Jesus knew this. His life was on a pointed mission, and he brings this up repeatedly. He says, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and save the lost. He said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, Jesus had come to save the lost and the sick as a shepherd and a doctor. His purpose was to take care of the problem of sin for all who entrusted themselves to him. Jesus knew where he was from and why he had come to save people plagued by sin. But even just talking about that means we need to ask a couple of questions like, what is sin and why is it a problem? When we're talking about sin, we're talking about things not in reference to other people, but in reference to God. We're talking about crossing his laws, acting or thinking in a way contrary to what he says is right. It's missing out on the bullseye of the target. And the idea is that each and every sin puts ourselves before God, not loving him completely as we were made to do. It's a rejection of him as our rightful king. It's a form of rebellion. A rebellion for which we, as moral agents who make real choices, are held responsible. And here comes the problem. God is perfectly holy. And this means that God is completely incompatible with sin. He has nothing to do with it. He can't tolerate it. And sin separates people from him. We see this clearly in Isaiah 59, verse 2. It says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, over and over in the Bible, there's a picture of God's holiness as both light and fire. It's a light that reveals our wickedness so that we cannot hide in the darkness. And a fire that responds to sin as if it were gasoline that was getting too close to the flames. 
Now, wrath isn't a word that we tend to delight in. It doesn't give you the warm fuzzies. But it is God's rightful reaction to evil. And if God were not to respond to evil, if he was just to be okay with it, well, then he wouldn't actually be God worth worshiping. But as a light, God's holiness exposes sin. As a flame, his wrath consumes it. And so we discover this biblical truth, for the wages of sin is death. You see, we tend to think of death as just the the normal part of life, but the biblical idea of death was not to include it. It was not how it was intended. Death entered as a divine judicial response, a judgment fitting with the crime of sin against God. And just like you can shut down your laptop by either pressing a button or unplugging the cord, because it eventually dies, death was the just response put into motion for all of humanity because all have sinned. And if God is going to remain true to his own self and his own holiness, he is obligated to judge sinners. Well, then you might bring up the question, and it's a good one, why doesn't God just forgive? I mean, he asks us to do it. Jesus talked about forgiveness. If someone is to harm us, we're supposed to forgive them over and over and over again. Why can't God just do the same? Joshua Butler, an author, wrote this in his book, The Pursuing God. He said, let's say your neighbor crashes his car through your fence. When you discover the wreckage, the shambles, you forgive him. You say, don't worry about the fence. All is forgiven. But then he points out this. He says, but forgiving your neighbor doesn't do away with the bill or dissolve the problem. Somebody still has to pay for the new fence. You eat the cost because someone always has to pay. So what we struggle with then is really not understanding the costs, the high costs of our cosmic treason, or really recognizing the majestic holiness of a God who will always remain consistent with who he is. So our question really isn't, why doesn't God just forgive, but rather when we understand holiness and we understand sin and we see the high price of our rebellion, our question really should be, how can God justly forgive anyone? How is that even possible? And yet the Bible shows us over and over again, even long before Jesus, that God is a God who forgives. We see this in Exodus 34. It says, the Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, in revealing his glory to Moses, God was declaring these truths about himself, that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. But I hope you notice there's also something there that seems like a contradiction. He says he forgives sins, but will by no means clear the guilty. I thought forgiving sin was clearing the guilty. How can those work together? You see, there's, there's something here, even all the way back in Exodus, that is left unwrapped We get the heart of God that he cares about justice and righteousness and grace and mercy, compassion. And we get the results of forgiveness, but we're not given the means to reconcile God's holiness and this problem of forgiving sin. How is God going to forgive his people and deal with the cost? That's the important question. 
One of the things I've fallen behind in my own household this Christmas as we're trying to do what we can to make it meaningful and special is to actually disperse my kids' wish lists to the grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff. <laughs> and I even committed the, the cardinal sin, or we did, of making their Amazon wish lists private uh, because we haven't um, updated anything in there from last year. And part of the problem is this, is that my kids don't really know about all the different things that are purchasable out there. And so they, each one only has a list of like three, maybe four things that they just kind of come up on their own. Some of those things that I'm like, ooh, how did you get that idea? Well, I just thought they'd have those. I don't think they exist. Okay, we're going to figure this one out. But I can tell you a couple of things you won't find on their list. Uh, a gift certificate to start a living trust. Um, or a last will and testament, or a burial plot. None of those things are on my kids' Christmas list this year. Because death is the farthest thing we want to associate with Christmas or life. We get excited about birthdays and baby showers and other beginnings. In fact, I can give you a hot tip. If you want to make sure that you will not get invited to any two-year-old birthday parties, just show up with a nicely wrapped adult-sized coffin. You won't be invited back and the word will get out. It just seems weird to associate the two. And yet, back to our Christmas narrative, one of the gifts that the wise men bring is myrrh, most commonly used for preparing dead bodies for burial. You can look at John 19. It talks about it being used on Jesus as he's wrapped up. Even in our cute nativity scenes, death is foreshadowed. But even more than that, we see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, informs us that this was on Jesus' mind even before he was born. Philippians chapter 2, we looked at this a little bit last week, verse 6 and 7, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, this part can be described as the humiliation of the incarnation, as Pastor Ty spoke on this last week, uh, we see that though it's mysterious, what we can clearly see is that Jesus, who is eternally God, did not demand his glories be continue to continue in the same way once he took human form. He is to be infinite still and an infant, uncreated but with a birthday, all-powerful but with the need to eat and sleep. And if he scraped his knees... He'd bleed. But this humiliation, this lowering by taking on humanity doesn't end there. It wasn't all that Jesus had on his mind when he chose to be born. Look at verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is the humiliation of the crucifixion where Jesus lives a perfect life life of obedience to the Father's will, a life with a cross-centered goal. You know, Christmas and Easter might feel really far apart on our calendar, but in the mind of Christ from eternity past, they were connected like an engagement and a wedding. Christmas is when God engaged the world with the sure and pending promise of our rescue, which was then consummated at Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus wasn't only born to save, he was born to die. Christmas leads us to the cross. 
scholar and author and pastor John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, says this, from Jesus' youth, indeed, even from his birth, the cross cast its shadow ahead of him. His death was central to his mission. And Jesus' own words, again, they reflect this. Not only that he came to save, but that he came to die. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, Jesus saw his death as the means by which he would save. He saw it as a direct fulfillment of Scripture and of God's will. But he also knew that it was totally under his authority to do it. We see this in John 10, verses 11, and then verse 18. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from my father. Now, you might be thinking, but, but didn't Judas betray him? Wasn't it the, the religious Jews that had him arrested? And wasn't it the Romans that crucified him? Yes, it was. And it was your sin and mine that held the nails in his hands. But John's gospel purposely lets us know that it's not about what a man did to Jesus. It's about what Jesus was willing to do for mankind. Not as a victim, but as a volunteer. Not as a masochist, but as a, or even as a martyr. But as the gift of a savior to a world that needed saving. And for the glory of the God who could save well, the question then becomes, how does Jesus, how does his death solve this problem of our sins? Now, I'm not a car guy, uh, and I don't have to know how the engine works in order to get in the car and drive. Uh, I'm fine with that. But I have found that there are some things that are good to know that then you treat it a little better and uh, keeps you going down the road farther. It's good to open up the hood once in a while. Well, Sometimes we need to look under the hood of the cross. And a great passage in Romans chapter 3 um, that helps us to see under the hood of the cross is this. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you remember that part from before when we saw that God was forgiving sins, but he's not willing to clear the guilty? What God was doing is he was setting aside the cost of their sin for a time. Sort of like letting them pay off their debts using credit cards. You're just shifting uh, the debt to somewhere else. Well, he, eventually those debts would have to be paid, either by the people themselves through their own death and eternal separation from God, or that debt could be laid upon Jesus, where he takes the penalty, and he takes on God's righteous wrath, and he pays the price in full. That was how God could forgive those who had, in faith, died long before Jesus and it is the mechanism that is still God's plan for forgiving and saving us by the death of one bringing salvation to the many. Jesus dying once for all as a substitute in our place. 
Pastor John MacArthur was writing on this subject, and he said this, and I thought it fit very well. He said, there is no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truth ever revealed to man, could not save us from our sins. No, there was a price to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die. Only Jesus could do it. Now, you might be wondering, well, why only Jesus? Why not uh, Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or some other religious figure? I mean, they all died. Why weren't their deaths capable of doing what we needed? One, because only Jesus was perfect. Two, because only Jesus was fully God and fully man. And three, because only Jesus rose again to prove that the price he paid was enough. 1 John 4, verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, and there's that word again, the propitiation for our sins. You see, it was the eternal loving plan that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set into motion together, foretold in the scriptures, taking breath at Christmas and realized at Easter. It was pretty fun. This week, my wife, Rebecca, discovered a song uh, for our kids to kind of learn about and sing. And it was a hymn written in the 1800s in Scotland called Child in the Manger. And what I loved about this song is it uniquely brings the cross and the cradle together. Here's the first verse. It says, Child in the manger, infant of Mary, outcast and stranger, Lord of all, child who inherits all our transgressions, all our demerits on him fall. Friends, this is the plan from the beginning. In fact, it was from before the beginning that his birth would lead to his death, not because Jesus deserved it, but because we did. And when we're willing to see the cross from the side of the manger, we get the full picture of the gospel. To expand on something Tim Keller said, Jesus' death proves that you're more sinful than you ever dared believe. God is more holy than you can possibly imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's what the cross tells us. The cross is the very intersection of our sin and God's holiness and love. And Christmas is to lead us to that cross. So you might be wondering, well, what now? Have you ever noticed that a lot of problems have very specific solutions? For example, if you're driving down the road and your car breaks down, you're not looking for just anyone to drive up. Like, let's say you're a cardiologist. That's not going to be very helpful. And if you're lying on the operating table, you're not really looking forward to your mechanic showing up with a scalpel. There, there are certain things that just need particular people, particular solutions. Well, to consider the cross at Christmas is to recognize that our biggest problem, it's not what to serve at Christmas dinner. It's not trying to figure out how to make Uncle Larry and Cousin Joe actually sit at the same table. Or even the very real problem that some people have, that they don't have money for gifts this year. No, the biggest problem is sin. And God's greatest gift of the full life and death of Jesus is their waiting, and it's the only solution to the problem. Now, what I'm not saying is that you won't still have pain or loss to deal with. Just this week, a seven-year-old girl at my boy's school got diagnosed with life-threatening cancer. And they sent an email out to the family so that they could pray. That is hard. 
There is real pain amongst all the shiny gift wrap and presents and bells. But what I am saying is that the God who made you cared enough to come down, to share in your pain, to suffer, and to take your penalty too. Now this morning, if you are not a believer in Christ, this Christmas our hope is certainly that you would believe, that you would turn from doing life your own way and say to God, Jesus is my only hope in life and in death because I cannot do it on my own. And you can make that decision right from where you're sitting. And if you do make that decision, I'd ask that you please come and talk to me or Pastor Ty or one of the other pastors here. You know, our desire is that you'd open up that gift of Jesus this Christmas. But if you're not there yet, and you're saying, it, it sounds kind of good, but I still want to keep my distance, I'd ask that you do this. Keep coming. Keep being people who are kind of watching other people open up their Christmas presents and start to notice how excited the people around here are getting about Jesus and what that gift to them means in their lives. And maybe you'll see that it's not only real and necessary, but relevant to you. Now this, for the believers that are here, this gift gives us additional reasons to be thankful this Christmas. Because the gift God gave was not only that Jesus came, but why? And more than thankfulness, it's intended to show us that there is a mindset that we should adopt, this mindset of Christ that he talks about in Philippians 2, about self-giving and sacrifice for the sake of others. And that's about all year round. How about even more so at Christmas? Now, I don't know if you found what you were born to do. And I don't really think that matters as much as doing what we're called to do to trust and believe in Jesus so that we're not only born, but born again. However, for the most important birth of all time, we know this, Jesus was born to die because we weren't just in the darkness, but the darkness was in us. And Jesus was born to die because we have been dying from the moment we were born. And his death, only his death, there is the light of life, something to believe in and to celebrate this Christmas. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you that we can come here, we can rejoice, and we may not know whether Mary knew or not, but we know Jesus did. We knew that he voluntarily was going to the cross because he knew this was the way. This is the way that God forgives and pays the cost. This is the way that we have a chance to live life eternally with God, which could be our greatest joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.